Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges, chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 8 through the end of the chapter, 36. Judges 1, 8 through 36. Before we hear God's word read, let us go to him again in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we need the light of your spirit through the light of your word here to understand and apply this glorious text. So we pray for that light in Christ's name. Amen. Judges 1, 8 through 36. Hear now the word of God. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country in the Negev and in the, in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Shishai and Hahiman and Talmai. From there, they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zaphith and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scattered out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibleam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nachalol, so the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Ahlab or of Aksib or of Helba or of Afik or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath 
So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Heres, in Aijalon, and in Shalabim, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah, and upward. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We've just begun the book of Judges, as most of you know, and last week we saw the tribe of Judah. The question was, who shall rise up to lead Israel in the fight against the Canaanites because the time of the Canaanites had come? The iniquity over those four centuries had been such a mass that it, is now, it was now time for the Lord to drive them out. It was the royal tribe of Judah, just as Jacob had promised in Genesis 49, who would lead the way. Judah brought in Simeon, you'll recall, and as Judah and Simeon fought side by side, the battles for each tribe were won. The Lord's people are to be united in their fight of faith against evil wherever it is to be found. That's what we saw last week. In today's text, we read of both conquests and failures, and the question before us is, what is the difference maker? What determines conquest versus a failure in the life of the Christian? And what's clear throughout this text is that to be fully victorious against evil, the Lord must be with his people, and his people must trust in his powerful presence. Again, we see, uh, read with me, verse 8, And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. So we're still in Samuel's first introduction. You'll recall from last week that there are two introductions that he offers. And this is the introduction in which he speaks of the successes of Israel. This verse, verse 8, represents well the fiery destruction that was to be all of the enemies of Israel. And so in these verses, verses 8 through 26, we see some of the fruits of faithfulness to God's clear commands. As Judah leads the way, he leaves a holy destruction in his wake. And so two fruits grow from the the tree of faithfulness here. The first fruit is that of land, and the second will be that of love. Through Judah's leadership, many lands were taken or they were repossessed. We have the Negev, south. We're saving the first one mentioned, Jerusalem. We'll save that for last in this section. We see Judah's victorious hand in the south with reference to Hebron. This, this place, Hebron, was a place of refuge back in Abram's day, many years before. It was also a place of the Israelites. They were, they were told to make this place a city of refuge to prevent more needless bloodshed in the case of an accidental, um, in case of manslaughter. This would be a place to go to. For refuge. By taking over Hebron, then, Judah was providing a true safe place for the people of God. And so to conquer Hebron, Judah, as we see from verse 10, had to go through some giants. Or rather, it's a different verse. It was a 20 there. 
we have the sons of, of Anak. Here we have the, the descendants of, uh, of giants, certainly a, a force to be reckoned with, with this victory. Because here we have this reference to, to giants, of course, reminds us of the, the episode with the, the spies who spied out the promised land, and they saw the giants and said, it's too, too many and too big. We, we cannot take it. So with this victory in the Negev, we behold a fearless fidelity to the promise of God. So the posture from these people is that there will be no giant that's going to stand in the way of securing the promise of God. No one, no enemy is going to thwart the plan of God. We see faith in God's power, despite all obstacles, despite all uh, appearances. Skipping Debir for the next section, we see again Judah joined with other people. In the wilderness, we see the Kenites, the descendants of the Kenites. You might remember Jethro. He was Moses' father-in-law, a Kenite. And so these, these Kenites joined Judah to clean up some of the southern wilderness. This group was a subgroup of the Midianites. And as I mentioned, Moses had married one of these, Zipporah. And Moses and Jethro were on good terms. And they had agreed. Jethro's people and Moses' people had agreed to come together from time to time and wage war and win lands for the Lord. And one man says, here is a mini picture of salvation. That those outside of Israel, like the Kenites were, can either join with God's people and be saved, or war with God's people and be destroyed. It really is the, the offer of the gospel in the Christian life today is, we want you to be on God's side. We, we want you to bow the knee now before it is too late. We want those in the world to come and humble themselves before Jesus Christ, the Word of God, the God-man, and find refuge in Him him alone, find eternal security in him, him alone. At the same time, we know that those who do not bend the knee will ultimately spend an eternity under that same king's wrath. So we offer the gospel just as Christ has told us to do, to show the people two different ways, the way of life, the way of death. Judah joined with Simeon. Together they cleaned out the Canaanites in Zaphath. The burned-down city was renamed Hormah. And this, for a good and godly reason, the word Hormah means destruction or devoted to destruction. As Jericho had gone by way of complete devotion, now has Zaphath. This land, as it's burned up, is a whole burnt offering, a sacrifice well-pleasing in the sight of God, made to God in battle. The Canaanites weren't the only ites to feel the crushing weight of God's mighty hand. The Philistines in Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ekron are taking notice as they are perishing as well. And through Joseph, the place formerly called Luz was taken, a place that's later called Bethel. In a journey that is reminiscent of the spies in the days of Rahab, here we have Luz becoming God's land 
As Rahab had left Jericho for the Lord, she acknowledges that the Lord has done mighty things against the Egyptians and other people, and now he's coming for Jericho. And so she helps the spies, and she is saved. So now an unknown man left Luz for these other spies, only to start another city that he would call Luz. A bit confusing, isn't it? From one Luz to another. And through that, um, through that action, we even see that Canaanite evil sought its own place. And evil will always remain in the world until Christ comes back, but we are to refuse to give it a warm welcome at every step of the way. Every time it is knocking on the door, we say, no, you may not enter. And we, in this text, we drive it out. We drive out the evil from our own hearts. Wherever evil is to be found, it is to be eschewed, it is to be avoided, it is to be abominated, it is to be prayed that it would be removed entirely. And so God is keeping his promise with Jacob. And since God would be with Jacob, the place shall be called the house of God. Taking one place that where evil inhabited, and now it's repurposed for the glory of God. That's what Joshua is about. That's what Judge is about. That's what the Bible is about taking one spot of evil and replacing it with worship. Driving out evil, the flesh, the devil, the world. This first city that was mentioned, Jerusalem, saved here for last, was the future city of royalty. If there was one city that you knew, it would be this one, isn't it? Adonai Bezek, whom we considered last week, was brought to Jerusalem, to the city of God. For what purpose? to be sacrificed. Hence the fire. The city and its king were offered to God. As we saw last week, he acknowledged the justice of the judge of all the earth. Not that he had converted, but he knew that he got what was rightly coming to him. As he removed the thumbs and and, uh, big toes of those under his charge of his enemies, so was done to him. And so the city and his king were offered to God, doing away with all the impurity, idolatry, and wickedness of Canaanite influence. The fight for Jerusalem has been a long one, with victory coming to opposing parties at different points in history. Even now, the fight rages on. Judah, in Uh, Early church history in in Joshua's day, Judah had taken Jerusalem back in David's day, or just before David's day, the Jebusites, the the, uh, original inhabitants of the land, would take this place over again, but not for long, because King David would eventually take from them what is rightfully his, what is rightfully God's, the land that is earthly Zion, the city of David, the special presence of God. Why this long list of military successes. It seems rather tedious. A lot of names, a lot of places, a lot of victories. But the theological tedium has a purpose. There's a reason for all of this. At each of these spots, something significant needed to be recovered. And we see throughout this text, land is necessary. God created it after all. Certainly, it's important to him. Land is necessary for worship. We are right now 
on land, literally worshiping God. We need this place to worship. Now, we could be in a different place. As long as we are congregated, we have land for worship. We're not worshiping in, in midair. Okay. We need land. We need a place, a people. Land for worship, land for refuge, land for evangelism, land for ruling, and land for coming together in love. Land and love go together like, well, land and love. If you've seen the second Madagascar movie, I'm sure many of you have, Escape to Africa, you were introduced to the character, uh, a hippo named Moto Moto, and he anticipates the question, why is your name said twice? And he says, because it is so nice. That's why you say it. In these verses, we, we actually have a story we have already read before if we've read our Bible in Joshua 15. Here is a story of love so famous, so nice, that God tells it twice. It is important. It is a very meaningful story. It is a love story. In the midst of, of all of this fighting, there is a place for love. There's a place to have love in a place. Ever since Joshua and Caleb were outvoted by those spies, they've been itching to take the promised land. They knew that they could take out those giants. And 38 long years later, the time was right for Caleb to take by faith what was there. Can you imagine the heartache in Joshua and Caleb? They're the minority. They're speaking against the majority. No, guys, we can take it. God has given it to us. He's promised us. Let us go now. And they all say, no, too big and scary. Let's go find some other place to hang out. And you imagine just how hard that would be for, for Joshua and Caleb. They have to be in this wilderness, wandering for 40 years. Just knowing, just itching, just waiting to get back. I got to, the Lord has promised it. He's not going to take that promise away. We need to go. And just waiting for that generation to die off so they can then lead the next generation into that land. And here we have it. Do we have that attitude ourselves? Do we have that, that attitude that, that knocks so famously said to you, give me Scotland or I die. Do we have that attitude here? Lord, give us Fayetteville. Give us North Carolina. This is your land. This is our Father's world. It isn't Satan's world. This land is good dirt. The people. This is all God's creation. And so we say, oh Lord, convert the hearts of your people. Make people who were dead in the trespass and sins, make them alive in Christ. And make more of them. We know the joy that is in our hearts to have been saved by Christ. Do we not also want that for those who are outside of Christ right now? So Caleb has this deal he makes to ensure and to sweeten the victory of Debir. He offers his daughter in marriage. Some might balk at that and say, well, that, he's just treating her as property. 
No, he's not. He, is a res- he knows it is his responsibility to, to hand her over in marriage. His daughter is precious to him. What a prize she, Aksa, would be. Caleb is a godly man. He is a man of faith. He is a godly father. And so certainly his attitude is only the best man for my daughter. He must be courageous. He must be full of faith. No father worth his salt will be careless about giving away his little princess. And fathers are right to suspect, to challenge, and even test their daughter's suitors. And sometimes they might go overboard, but it's because of their great love for their daughters. And so if Aksa is going to be handed over in marriage, it must be to the right man. One man says, no medieval dragon slayer ever did more for his princess. Then Othniel does here. He conquers the enemy and, and gets the girl. Such is the way for godly husbands. They are to show themselves worthy of the daughter. They are to prove to their, hopefully, future godly father-in-law that they are the right man for their daughter. Do they combat against their sin? Do they fight against their own flesh? Do they seek to cultivate spiritual habits, godly disciplines? And will they take care of? Will they provide for? Will they protect this beautiful girl, this now woman? Such was the way of Othniel, Caleb's nephew, who captured the city and joyfully claimed his prize, Oxah, his treasure for a wife. For truly, he who finds an excellent wife has found riches beyond jewels. And Oxah's petition shows how excellent a wife she really is, how much to be treasured she really was. She says, bless me, you have given us a place in the Negev, but we need water. And Caleb joyfully grants this request by giving them both upper and lower springs, A land without water is a wasteland. It is a place of abandonment. It's a place of famine and death. That's where the Canaanites were to be driven out to if they weren't to be vanquished altogether. And so to ask for a place near sources of water was to ask for a place to be fruitful. The country song, By Dirt, aptly summarizes the sentiment in these verses. By dirt, find the one you can't live without. Get a ring. Let your knee hit the ground, do what you love, but call it work. Throw a little money in the plate at church. Send your prayers up and your roots deep down. Add a few limbs to your family tree. Watch their pencil marks in the grass in the yard all grow up. It's, it sounds better when it's sung. <laughs> but that's the attitude. It's not really about the dirt but those who inhabit, those who live in the land, those who live in the house, those who run around and play, those who sit down, family worship, those who pray with one another, to grow up in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. And Othniel, or Oxa and Othniel recall the command given to their first father and mother, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Such is the way for all of us who follow the Lord. 
God has gifted us both land and love as fruits of his faithful presence as we fight with faith. The Lord God has graciously poured out to us all that we need in order to live holy lives before his face, a place for worship, a place for refuge, a place to make a home, a place for others as well. Surely, Americans can get on board with the idea for needing land. And our American Puritans were no different. They saw the purpose of having a place, freedom to worship, a place to build a home, a place to construct a culture that was entirely devoted to God and to make a place for those to come and bow the knee to Christ as king. As I was driving to work earlier uh, last week, there was a, a truck in front of me, and I stopped at a light, and it was a landscaping service, and the motto was, beautifying your part of the world. Beautifying your part of the world. And I thought, well, that's a good summary uh, of what a landscaping service is supposed to do to help us make beautiful the part that we have. And that's what Judges is about as well. It's God beautifying a part of the land that he is giving them by driving out evil and by replacing it with righteousness, with the reign of the king of all the earth. Let us not then be overly spiritual that we cannot see the value of dirt, of a place to run and play in, of, of ground to till, of crops to grow, of houses to build, of marketplaces to establish. And if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is with us, then what can stop us? After all, Christ is in charge. Judges was a mere type of the land that is the whole earth, the place that all the meek shall inherit. Christ has conquered death to give us life in a land that is spiritual, uppercase S, but that does not mean only immaterial or unearthly. Truly, we await a better city, a heavenly one, one which we are right now in body and spirit citizens and whose influence affects not our spirits alone, but all that we are, all that we do, and where we are and where we do. But we even now seek the welfare of the city in which we are exiles, and we certainly seek the welfare of those under our care. The heavenly Jerusalem will one day come down to this very earthy earth, and righteousness and joy shall reign forevermore. Of this we are certain because the greater Othniel has secured it for his bride. And as much as we'd like to end on this high note of hope, Samuel will not let us leave without a warning. True. When God is with us and we are relying upon him alone, we are reaping, uh, we are bearing fruit. We are uh, bearing a harvest of holiness. But you know what they say? Half obedience is not full obedience. And so sadly, in these verses of chapter 1, these last verses, 27 down to the end of the chapter, there are notes of failure, utter failure, really. The tribes in the north would not, and so they could not drive out all the inhabitants. That's important. They would not, and so they could not, from unbelief. Samuel points this out seven times, from 27 to 36. 
Each of these sections has that note of failure. And we know what the word, where the number seven communicates. Completion, perfection. Here we have a complete failure. But how do these tribes fail? Where do they go wrong? Remarkably, it was in their display of probably what they thought was mercy, which really was just compromise. Remember the Lord's words in Exodus 23, 31 through 33, I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. For half of the tribes mentioned, they forced the pagan nations into slavery. For them and the rest, they didn't drive out all the people. The Egyptians made the mistake of forcing the Israelites into enslavement. And God did not want the Israelites to make that same mistake. He didn't want the Israelites to treat these godless nations as Egypt had treated them. No mercy, no compromise in this case was to be shown. Because, again, the Lord had already promised, because of four centuries of iniquity growing and growing, the Lord, and so the land, would vomit them out, he says. Spit them out. Drive them out. You know, when a burglar tries to come into your house, and he's even made a way into into your house, you don't say, well, come on in. We were playing a board game. You want to come and play? We've got some food on the table. You want some of that? What can I get you to drink? We don't do that. We don't allow that. We, we take whatever weapons we have to stop the intruder. Here's an enemy to you and to your household. And you try to drive him out with whatever you can do, with whatever you have. Get out. And here, the Israelites in the various tribes were were playing with the enemy, letting them have a foothold. And even as we'll see next next week, the Israelites are adopting the gods, these false gods of these pagan nations. So when, when good is with us, when God is with us, we are renewed. But when evil is with us, we are ruined. Enslavement was too merciful to them. It was too disobedient to God. And the Israelites allowed the evil to remain with them, and so they caused their own downfall. This is tragic. The Lord had spoken clearly. And so we fail, dear ones. When, as, as Peter says, we like dirty dogs, return to our own vomited sins. When we, when we sleep with the enemy, when we play games with the enemy. When we think, what's, what's wrong with just a little sin? What's wrong with just a little bit of, of, of looking? Might seem innocent, not really toxic, not really harmful, not really severe from the beginning. That's just one little step after another down the road to destruction. 
And the Lord does not want that for us. The Emmanuel, God with us, has given us his spirit that we might do away with the flesh as we rest upon the finished work of Christ. So what's the cause of all of these episodes of failure? In a word, it is unbelief. They would not, and so they could not drive out the enemy. Dale Ralph Davis, in his commentary, says, Israel is dominant, if not obedient. She enjoys superiority, even if she does not maintain fidelity. She's on top of the world. And yet, she doesn't humbly submit herself to the word of God. Again, it's tragic. And the fight, the last few verses, the fight between the Amorites and the tribe of Dan bears this out. Not only do the Amorites resist the resistance, but they even pushed Dan back. They pressed Dan back into the hill country and refused admission into their plain. No way these scrawny in faith Danites were going to get past this Amorite bouncer. And why? Because the Amorites persisted in their unbelief more than the Dan had persisted in faith. The necessity of faith in God's powerful presence spans all time, Old Testament, New Testament, now. Why could the disciples not cast out that unclean spirit? Because, Jesus says, that exorcism required faith, shown through prayer and fasting. They could not rely on their own supposed strength. They had to, moment by moment, trust in Christ. Dear saints of God, faith, though it is a gift, is is hard, and as a muscle needs to be exercised. Recently, someone asked me what book of the Bible they could read in order to help them grow in trusting the Lord. And I knew their situation, and so I pointed out a, a few books in particular, a few books of the Bible. But here's the truth. I could have pointed to any of the 66 books of the Bible. Every single book of the Word of God is about trusting in Him for all of life. And trusting in Him because there is a war. One man's com- uh, commentary on Judges is called God's War Against Humanism. It's a fight. As we saw in ABF this morning, we're waging war against our own passions. Genesis 3, there's that warfare between the Son and Satan. And as we engage this battle joined to Jesus, we fight with faith, with belief in God's powerful presence to uproot all evil, beginning with what remains in our hearts. Verse 19 says, And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Now, you might know of the popular atheist Dan Barker. He loves this verse because he thinks that this verse is to be used to discount any kind of belief in God. Why would you believe in God? He can't even take down a few iron chariots. Of course, unbelief tends to be selective. And if Dan Barker had read just a few chapters later, and I know he's read it before, he would know that 
iron chariots pose no problem for a god during the days of Deborah and Barak. The issue wasn't divine strength, but human faith. Will Israel rely on the Lord? Will Israel take God's word for what it is, the word of God? Or will they seek to do what is right in their own eyes? Of course, it's not a question just for ancient Israel. It is a question for all of us every step of the way. Will we, day by day, moment by moment, rest solely on the word of God for all of life and godliness? If your faith is like mine, it is at times weak. And there is one remedy, is, ironically, a prayer of faith, asking for more faith. Help, I, I believe, help my unbelief. God, I trust in you, but not as well as I need to. I look at my circumstance, and it seems like everything is crashing on me. The burdens are weighty, and, it's, and the, the mountainous weight seems insurmountable. How, O oh Lord, will I ascend this mountain? How can I get this weight off of me? That's a good place to be. God wants us humbly before Him, praying to Him for greater measures of faith. And since faith is a gift from God, it is also one that He loves to give you more of. And he will do that through trials of various kinds. He is trying to work through ancient Israel here by giving them trials of various kinds that they might grow to trust in the Lord. And it's the same for us. Let us always pray for more measures of faith to keep on fighting the good fight. And as we fight, we fight with the power of God's spiritual presence in and through us. Yet, Even our fruit-bearing is incomplete this side of heaven because our faith is incomplete. You'll remember that the Philistine territories of Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ekron were taken. But if you know your Philistine territories, there are two others that were not mentioned, Gath and Ashdod. These were part of Judah's allotment. And so even Judah's conquest was incomplete. Because of the faithlessness of Benjamin, not all the Jebusites were driven out of Jerusalem. Because of the other tribes' failure to handle matters uh, fully, there were sinful associations that remained. You pick your tribe from Judah up to Dan, there were some remnant of incompleteness. There's some instance of Israelite infidelity. And so a reminder that even our good works need reformation. It's not that our good works are filthy rags. Jesus tells us that we can bear good fruit. They are real. They are pleasant fruit. What you are doing, if you are doing it in faith, in dependence on the Lord, I worship you, that is a good thing. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. But with faith, what we do does please God. But it's that even in our best moments, we never measure up to God's expectations. It's that... We depend on the perfect work of Christ 
for all that we do. Our own confession says this well. They who in their obedience attain to the greatest height which is possible in this life are so far from being able to supererogate and to do more than God requires as that they fall short of much in duty they are bound to do. You really can't attain so high a level of, of good works that you could say, now, here's my merit. Let me enter into your heavenly abode. No. We are always unworthy servants who have only done their joyful duty. And so when our works are considered good, it's only because Christ is working through his Spirit. But when we take Christ out of the picture, we take the Spirit out of the picture, when they come from just us, they are defiled. They are mixed with so much weakness, so much imperfection, that they cannot endure the severity of God's judgment. This is all the more reason, then, dear ones, to live a life of faith-filled fighting for the glory of God. With man, nothing is possible. But with God, all things are possible. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we believe, and yet we can grow in our belief. We trust, and at the same time, we can grow in our trust. We pray that you would transform us, Father, because of the work of your Son and through the power of your Spirit to move us ever closer into the image of the Son who lived, died, and was raised from the dead and who was seated at the right hand of you, Father, for us, for our justification. Amen.